Marai, the podcast, co-hosted by the Governance Program at the Aga Khan University and the International Society for Islamic Legal Studies in cooperation with the University of Bern. Welcome to Sharai, the podcast. My name is Gianluca Parolin. And my name is Serena Tolino, and we are here today with Asifa Kuraishi, who works as Professor of Law at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Welcome, Asifa. Thank you so much. It's really wonderful to be here. So, uh, Asifa, our uh, first question um, is related to your uh, role on, uh, in the board of, uh, of ISILS, where you act since 2008. Can you maybe tell us something more on your connection to the society? Yes, I've watched ISILs grow from, from before it was ISIL. So I was a graduate student at Harvard Law School, studying with Frank Vogel, as many ISILs members know well. Um, and uh, I think the, confer- the one of the first conferences that was the origination of this uh, community happened, I think it, back when it was called the Schacht Conference, happened while I was in school. Um, and then so- shortly after I graduated, or right around the same time, uh, I heard from Perry Bierman, um, who also everyone here knows and loves well, um, that this was going to be a regular organization and that you could join. And I really enjoyed the cross-pollinization of non-Muslims studying this as their field and Muslims studying this as their field and having this academic exchange of people who used to be, you know, if you, if you just think about Schacht, it was more of an Orientalist kind of community, if you think just of Schacht. And so Schacht himself is a little controversial, depending on who you're talking to. And I thought that ISIL's really did a wonderful job of overcoming that controversy and saying, this is a group of people who are interested in this field as an academic discipline, whatever your background, and we are going to study this together. And I really like that connection. And so I was really honored to keep coming to the conferences whenever I could. And there was a chance to join the board. I, I was really excited to try and, and I made it. So I'm here. <laughs> Asifa, when you're not on your ISIS board member duties, what do you like to do on your free time? So many people don't know this, but if I weren't teaching, I would be renovating and flipping, as we say in the United States, houses. So I love to um, put up sheetrock and sand down wood and restain old stairways and tile bathrooms. And I love the older the house, the better. Um, and I think this is largely because I spend so much time in my head that I need to see something tangible results. And it's immediate when you fix up a house, whereas when you write a law review article, it could take months, maybe years before anybody notices that you did it. So um, I love seeing that. And I love old things and old houses. And uh, I hope to, uh, like to put them back on the market for people who love to live in a renovated old house. Um, Asifa, uh, you participate to many conferences of ISILs. And as you know, this podcast is a kind of preparation for uh, the next conference. So tell us, is there something that you particularly liked in previous uh, conferences of the societies? I mean, it's always so amazing to get so many, uh, the word I'm thinking of is rock stars, like people who are, you only know from reading their work. And then everyone is, it's not just one, it's not two, it's three, it's four, it's five, it's 10 of these amazing people all in a room together. And you're listening to their work, but then you're having lunch with them. And then you end up chatting with them about their favorite ice cream or whatever it is. And you just see the whole person. And I really love that. And so any conferences like that, but as those conferences are, um, really drawing from so many people from so far around the world. Um, and usually for an extended period of time, you can really get to see the whole person. So I really like that about the conferences that I've attended. Yeah. 
Is there anything about this galaxy of rock stars that you would like to see in the future? <laughs> um, I, we've done a good job, but I think we could do a better job of holding these conferences in Muslim-majority countries. Um, I think it's, it's lovely um, to have these in places that are easy to get to. Um, you know, a, a Western passport gets you to a lot of places, but when you think about places that are hard to get out of or get into, I think we're losing a lot of the population around the world that would be interested in our work. So I would love to see us branch out. I, I know we were chatting, I think we've done in Turkey. Um, we're going to be in London. We've been in the United States. I would really like to see us go um, really further out into the places where um, may not even know about us, but there's great scholars there who would love to be able to attend and wouldn't otherwise be able to attend because it's so far away. Which one has been your favorite ISILS conference up to now? Oh, gosh. Um, I really like Ankara. I thought, yeah, I didn't think about that. But I really liked Ankara. I mean, I, I thought it was a nice blend of, of we got to see the city, we spent time with each other, and it was just a lovely, well, really well run or real streamlined, or, you know, it was streamlined and smooth uh, operations, and it was still very fun. Evgenia would be very pleased. I know, I know and it is all Evgenia too. It completely was. And many brownie points. Yeah, you? exactly. <laughs> and actually, I'm jealous because everyone speak about this Ankara conference as the best conference ever. It was and really I good. It. it was good. It was very good. Asifa, I have a question about your article, Islamic Constitutionalism, not secular, not theocratic, not impossible. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think most of um, us are familiar with your argument. Um, so I would like to ask you a question about an a possible application of your argument, and in particular sure. of your second pillar, the mm -hmm. one about the voluntary alternative that you sort of lay out. Mm -hmm. In the past, um, in, in the recent past, we have seen a very um, interesting attempt to reform inheritance law in Tunisia. And the proposal had this sort of mechanism of opt-in and opt-out, and it came in various um, incarnations. So I wonder if that would be um, one possibility of uh, uh, applying your um, second pillar to like a lived existing reality. So that's a great question, Gianluca. Um, I, I think there's a lot of history of what people would call uh, different types of legal pluralism. And I think the Tunisian example is a proposal that didn't get through, but a proposal of what the legal theorists would call weak legal pluralism as opposed to strong legal pluralism. In other words, weak legal pluralism, again, legal pluralism is where there is both state law and non-state law, and both are recognized in the society as mechanisms for um, life decisions and conflict resolution. Um, strong legal pluralism would be the state only controls the part that is the state law. Weak legal pluralism would be the state still had some controls over options and people could choose among options, but the state was still in control of all the options. For example, where you see places that have um, uh, a parallel Sharia court and the state court, still the laws applied by the state court are still controlled by state legislation. It's just that you can choose which venue to go to, but the content of the law is still essentially controlled by the state. So that would be weak legal pluralism because there's still some choice, but the state is still in control of all the content. What I'm imagining is more strong legal pluralism because I think this is closer to what existed in Muslim societies before the modern period. And I think the benefit of that is that the, the evolution of the fiqh, of the interpretation of sharia by different schools and scholars, happens much more organically and freely. So it's not affected by 
political needs and um, posturing and government power. So if all of your options are within the more or less academically free world of fiqh, then individuals can choose options that may not be politically popular, but is still there. So it's I have very little detailed understanding of the Tunisian proposal, but it sounds a bit like there was still some state control over all of the options. It was just giving people some options. And I think that there is a really important role to play if people can choose fiqh that is not gone through some kind of state legislative process. Now, how do you control for it going crazy and getting out of hand and people are choosing things that are way out of the realm of what the state would want? I have, that's my third prong, to put some boundaries on what the state can uh, can accommodate. But it for me, I'm imagining a very robust realm of fic that is really, really separate from the state. And I think that gives freedom to individuals. I think it frees up the public conversation over what is the correct and incorrect versions of interpretation, which I think we get stuck in. And so the there's a lot of posturing in the political realm of like, no, that's an inappropriate interpretation of Sharia. And if it's kind of a new radical reform idea, it's not going to get the kind of popular support to get passed. And yet it's still a legitimate fic opinion that if you allowed people to opt out of it, even without political support, I think it would help a lot of people. I also think it would help the fic evolve. So if you have lots of new ideas, even if they're not majoritarily popular, um, over time, people might gravitate to that one. So the whole vote with your feet kind of idea, I imagine like lots of different fic options for people. And so the ones that are most serving the people's needs the best, those are the ones that survive. And the ones that are not serving people's needs very well, those will die off like the fic schools in the past also died off. So I hope if you're more fair to women, you're going to get more customers. And then those Fuqaha, those muftis, those qadis are going to get more business and those will grow and the others will die off. That's my hope. We'll see what happens. Asifa, you also, you were uh, very nice and we were very lucky because we could um, read uh, already the prologue and the introduction to the, um, to the book you're uh, writing, also on mm-hmm. Islamic constitutionalism. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, I loved what I could read, of course, uh, the rest of the book, um, <laughs> I will have to wait. Um, mm-hmm. And the, in, the, um, in the introduction, you discussed and uh, you speak about your positionality, which is, of course, something that um, is quite central um, for, for all of us as researchers. And then um, you discuss a bit your uh, background as uh, a woman who has a Muslim background, but has completely been educated in um, the U.S. Um, system. So I would like to know something more about that and uh, how, um, I mean, whether uh, this reflection were a kind of reaction or uh, are just your thoughts and also in general, what kind of reaction you get to your proposal on Islamic constitutionalism. (laughs) I get every possible reaction, I think you can imagine. So, um, so my, 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 my setting myself up with details about my positionality, as you put it, it was very important to me because I, I wanted to anticipate potential criticism as all writers do. Right. And so I thought that one of the potential criticisms would be like, you don't live here. You don't know what it's like. How dare you helicopter in and give us all your ideas. You sit comfortably out there in your nice Victorian renovated house mansion, whatever. And you don't know what it's like to live in, you know, Tunis or whatever, right? So I've actually had people say that to me. I was at a conference in Iran, in Tehran, a couple before COVID, and and the commentator said exactly that. He said, you don't live here, you don't know what it's like. And so I was very sensitive to that is a thought. Um, I also myself don't like it when I think people are making commentary on things that matter very much to me and they haven't experienced life the way I have on anything, whether it's parenting or 
living in Madison, Wisconsin, whatever. Like, I, you don't know. So how dare you tell me? So I had to explain, I, even to myself, I think, what is my role here? And being very humble about what I can offer. And yet still, even though I am in this interesting hybrid experience where I am Muslim, I care about this, I really want this to work because I believe that the material is really valuable and insightful. And I look around and I see what I think are people misusing it to sometimes violent ends. And I feel that my expertise in studying this can offer some options to help through some of that violence and conflict that I see in places that I care very much about that I I do have some connection to. My father was born in Jaipur, so I do have some biological connection. Um, But even if I did, and I care about these people as part of the ummah that I consider myself a part of, I care about it. And so I want it to be better. And I thought I could offer what I can. And so I end up with, here's what I have. Here's who I am. If it doesn't work for you, obviously don't take it. But I'm humbly offering this as a suggestion. And um, I, of course, don't know everything about what it's like to live there. But I have the benefit of being able to sit back and I think, look at it from an angle that maybe you can't see from looking at it from the outside. And so there is some benefit to being an observer that sometimes people can't see from the inside. And so if I could offer that hybrid experience, maybe that helps. Um, and then at the end of the day, Allahu A'lam, as we say, right? Whatever works for you, take it. Whatever doesn't, God knows best. And so I hope that that's the spirit within which it's taken. I have had positive reactions as well. I have, not everybody says, who the hell are you doing this? Some people have said, you know, we haven't said it. I gave a talk in Jakarta uh, way when I was very beginning the research. And, um, you know, Jakarta, in Muslim Indonesia, Indonesia, Indonesian Muslims are criticized by other quote unquote Islamic states for saying, look, you're the most populous Muslim country in the world. Why don't you call yourself an Islamic state? You know, so they, the people I was talking to felt like we like what we're doing, but we don't really have the best language to respond to that complaint. And so this, this lawyer that I was talking to said, I really like the way that you were giving me some language to speak about this. It feels like I can describe what we're doing in a more authentically Islamic way and have a little bit of pushback against a particular version of Islamic State that seems to have taken over everyone's minds, that that's not the only way to do an Islamic government. Um, So I really, I have gotten some positive um, reactions as well, and we'll just see when it's done, uh, where it all lands. But I appreciate that you you noticed that. Asifa, in your prologue to your forthcoming book, um, you share with readers um, a eureka moment uh, through an anecdote of... um, an experience to the MYC, the Muslim Youth Camp, in which um, you sort of like realized how you could actually um, discuss the distinction between fiqh and siyasa to um, a non-specialist audience. Um, That anecdote is fantastic to read. And as a reader, I wonder if you could tell uh, our listeners um, what the reaction was, because that is a part that in the prologue isn't covered. Right. So should I tell the anecdote or should I ruin my, my surprise of the publication? Well, I think you can decide uh, which, I mean, I think, uh, you know, having, le- having learned from, you know, the, the stellar media industry, you can play with what you spoiler and what you don't. <laughs> tease it, tease it, yes. <laughs> like a trailer, so, yes, a teaser, that's right. exactly. right, it's a teaser. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, so I've been involved in the Muslim Youth Camp of California since before I was born, my parents started it. So it's a, it's an institution of American Muslim community uh, experiences. And 
the community has, has had various rules. And one of the rules has been somewhat controversial, but also sometimes not controversial, is a clothing dress code that involved the all controversial headscarf question. And so when we decided to change the rule, we were trying to figure out how to explain it to people. And I realized that Fekansiasa was the way to explain it. And so not going into too much detail, but there are rules for people's personal lives. And then there are rules that the state is in charge of. And those are different in, in type and in difference in source and difference in purpose. And I realized that those had been merged in people's minds. And I was offering my a little bit of my analysis on this on the constitutionalism, try to explain how the, the, the uh, board of directors had made the decision um, at the Muslim youth camp. What was the reaction? So now, now John Luke has given me the idea to put this in the epilogue. So inshallah, maybe I'll do that. And I will acknowledge him. Um, so I, the reaction was remarkably a non-reaction. The reaction was, well, okay, sure. I didn't get anybody saying, oh, this is controversial. How dare you? How dare you? And my, and they kind of went along with it. And we've done other things in the camp that are quote unquote controversial. Um, like we do, for example, side by side, male, female prayer, as opposed to front to back. We just did it one day and it's just been like that since then. And some people were like, huh, that's different. And then they just, after a while, they just didn't notice it anymore. Right. And so I, 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 Chalk that up to, I think that there is, this is what gives me a little bit of confidence in my book project too. I think that there is an innate understanding of the difference in Muslim hearts and minds. They just don't talk about it in those terms. But when you operate that way and you behave in such a way that there is a difference between the kinds of rules that the government makes and the kinds of rules that you live your life by. And that those are, it's not a secular religious divide. It's not a public private divide. It's a much more nuanced divide, but there is a divide in Muslim history. And I think also in Muslim minds, it's just that I would say colonialism and modernity has transformed the way we're able to talk about it. So we don't have the language for it. So it's not a strange thing to do. It's just a strange thing to name. And so once you name it, they're like, oh yeah, okay. That's, that's what I thought anyway. And so that's fine. And so that was, I I would say the the reaction was a non-reaction, which I think is the right reaction. We do need names and concepts to see reality. So that's a good yeah. uh, incarnation yeah. of that, I think. Yeah. 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 Thank you. So Asifa, we are um, all, I think, back on campus uh, after the yeah. big COVID crisis. And we are now in the middle of the semester trying to survive. And so <laughs> I have also a question on, um, on teaching. And um, I would like to know where do you usually introduce your current research in your course outlines, if you manage to do that? Yeah, I. so the way I teach my course on Islamic law and jurisprudence is I... I probably don't do it the traditional way that many people do. I want them to understand that engine of had as much as possible before they start thinking about doctrine. So I want them to get inside the methodologies of the different schools of law. And so to do that, I give them a hypothetical to start with. And um, we, we think about what would be the tools. If you had to invent this system, what are the tools that you would use to figure out the answer? Um, given only a few Quranic verses and maybe some Hadith, what else do you need to answer these questions? And over time, they sort of invent payas, they invent maslaha, they invent they like various tools that you would need. What is the what is the linguistic rule that? Wh- how much is linguistics going to help us here? Does grammar help us? Does historical understanding help us? Like eventually, they basically invent all the usulafik <laughs> in class. Um, but we spend a lot of time doing that that very theoretical thing. Um, and then I talk about, hey, have you noticed we haven't talked about a caliph or a sultan yet? 
you know, isn't that interesting? And so I don't bring in the role of the state and the caliphs and the sultans and Siasa until about now. Like I am like late October and next week is when we're going to first start talking about that. And the reason is I really think that it's more natural to the way you need to think about Sharia um, than if you started with a government. If you start with a government, I think that's a much more Western nation state way of thinking about law. And it turns everything upside down in a way that makes it very hard to unpack to understand what is going on in the minds of the fuqaha when they were doing their work. They were doing their work regardless of what the state was doing. It had nothing to do with them in many situations. So in order to do that, I think they need to engage with the the theoretical material first, and then we layer on the role of the state. And so that's when I come in with the the CS stuff. So back in the classroom, do you have a favorite technique that you like to use? So I mentioned that I have them spend a lot of time talking about theory and I want them to get inside the mindset of the, of the schools of law. So the way that I do that, my trick, is I actually have the students, after we've done a little bit of preliminaries, I have the students pick a school and then they sit in their schools and then we go back and we debate. What is the use of Piyas? How do, do we want to use that? How would you decide which hadith to use? What's the validity of this hadith? Um, is it useful? You know, would you use uh, as, a, as a method, right? So I have them sit in the schools and they debate this across the schools. And I, by the way, don't just include the four Sunni schools, but I also have Jafari and I include the Zaharis because I love them as a counterpoint to everybody else. And so what happens is the Zaharis are saying, Piyas is a joke. What are you guys talking about? This is completely speculative. I don't understand why you're doing this. And then the Hanafis have to defend it. And so I have this cross debate in the classroom. Um, and they really, really get this sense of like, these are all scholars who are trying to get to the same result. They just have different approaches to get there. And and they, they internalize the different methodologies so well when they have to do that and they have to defend why this, why that be across the room. And, um, and I, I love the fact that at the end of the semester, I'm able to say to a classroom, it's mostly non-Muslim students, that not only do you probably know more about Islamic law now than most Muslims around the world, but also this is going to be easy to you. I tell them, they joke about it. In the beginning, they're like, oh, come on, this is going to be so hard. And I said, you will be surprised. By the end of the semester, somebody in the room is going to say, oh, that's such a Hanafi thing to say. And they're like, how could they possibly? And they do. They all do. At the end of it, non-Muslim students, Muslim students, all the same. They have internalized the thinking of this so well that they can identify that style of thinking. And that, to me, that's really, really valuable because it tells you much more about why arguments are happening out in the world today than the surface nature of the argument. What's usually happening is there are different methodologies of how they understand truth arguing with each other. It's not really just the conclusion. It's really they're just thinking about it differently. And so when they do this trick that I do, I think that they really internalize that. I also do it in my constitutional law class, too, but that's a different topic. So this applies to your usul part. Do you have a similar mm-hmm. thing for the furua section or do you uh, use an application yeah. of that? It's more like now that you know the schools, what do you think? You know, I'm going to give you different, the Maliki and the, and the Hanafi grounds for divorce. What do you think they would do with, you know, the, they've have enough internal life that they, we just comment on it at that point. What sort of readings do you assign for that class then? Um, it's a collection. I made my own reader like most of us do. Um, it's a combination of, of excerpts from books, some Halak, some Vogel, some Kamali, um, Bernard Weiss. It's, it's a random collection. And I try to up- update it as much as possible. Um, at the, every day there's new stuff coming out. So it's a constant, um, not Herculean effort. Who's the, who's the guy who rolled the thing up the hill and it kept coming? Sisyphus. It's like that. 
right? You're constantly, and then it comes back and you're rolling it back up. It's, it's like that all the time, but it's good. I really appreciate that there's new stuff and there's usually uh, somebody's tackled something that I wish told already. And then, Oh good. I, I now have this. Like now there's articles I'd wanted people to write on, um, Hassas and restorative justice. Cause I think there's a lot of common thinking in the restorative justice movement and, and the idea of Hassas. And now people have written about that now. They hadn't when I started. So that's nice. Thank you. I took a lot of notes, Asifa. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> so my last uh, question on teaching would be, what is your favorite thing to teach in Islamic law if you have one? So my answer is that it isn't a thing. It's a thing that happens. So what I love is that almost every single year that I teach, um, there's always some Muslim students in my class. I teach it as a law school class. So it's often just law students who are interested in comparative law. But there's usually a handful of Muslim students once in a while. and because I emphasize this diversity, the ikhtilaf of the different schools so much, I just love it when I see their eyes open to the fact that, oh, um, Islam isn't just the version that my mother taught me. There's all these other ways to be Muslim. Um, and that it is usually just a freeing moment. And it just makes them feel better and more comfortable in the world and allows them to kind of navigate the differences that they experience. And they probably weren't quite sure how to treat the differences that they were encountering. And, and they, it just, it just opens them up to, to, um, I don't know, comfort with diversity, I think, and, and to embrace it as something that is part of Islamic history and not something that's a challenge that just showed up now, but it's actually part of our history. And I just really love that. I, and usually it's somebody like, Oh, my mom said there was only one way to do this. I didn't realize there was five. This is great. You know, that kind of thing. That's the moment I say, okay, we've got that. Um, and so I love it when that happens. Thank you, Asifa. It was marvelous to have you as a guest on Shara'i, the podcast. So wonderful to chat with you guys. And it's really wonderful that we're doing this. I'm enjoying being part of the early episodes. Thank you a lot also from my side, Asifa. It was a pleasure to have you. 